Zadahunsade ne TVO Radiri Hoenata. You are listening to a TVO podcast. Sovereignty is the ability for a people to make their own decisions, to speak and be heard. For Indigenous people battling generations of colonization, we express our sovereignty in many different ways. Through living our lives as our authentic Indigenous selves, through our leadership, stories, and teachings, and through our art. Join us, Chris Beaver and Shelby Lisk, on The Art of Sovereignty. In each episode, we explore the history and lives of First Nations artists who would not let others define them. They fought against the currents and used their work and their influence to break barriers and bring Indigenous perspectives to the forefront. The following podcast mentions residential schools. The Indian Residential School Crisis Line is available 24 hours a day, for anyone experiencing pain or distress as a result of their residential school experience. You can call 1-800-721-0066. Please take care while listening. Sego sewagwagon, Shelby Yungyats, Liste waksanazre, Genengehaga ni wakunjodon, Danon waginyatun, Gundege nidiwagenu. I'm Shelby Lisk, a Genengehaga artist and journalist from Tyndanega Mohawk Territory. From TVO Podcasts, this is The Art of Sovereignty. In the summer of 1990, on Queen West in downtown Toronto, four brightly colored banners grabbed the attention of the busy street below. Blue, red, violet, and crimson. They covered the windows of Salto artist Robert Hull's second story studio, and each proclaimed a message in bold white letters. False face, land claim, Longhouse, Sovereign. He covered his windows with banners so that his studio would be completely dark and that he wouldn't paint. That's Shirley Medill. She is the executive director at the Kitchener-Waterloo Art Gallery. She began working with Houle over 30 years ago when she was the curator of contemporary art and photography at the Winnipeg Art Gallery. Houle put a stop to his painting for months in solidarity with the communities of Ganasadage and Ganawage and the entire Mohawk Nation. He was quoted at the time as saying, a rainbow of color denied light is darkness, mourning. Widely remembered as the Oka crisis, for those who lived it, they simply refer to it as 1990. That summer, developers in Ganasadage's neighboring town of Oka, Quebec, sought to expand a golf course onto lands that contained the community cemetery. For 78 days, the Mohawk Nation and their allies defended the burial ground and skirmished with both the Quebec Provincial Police and the Canadian Army. It was a bloody day at the Mohawk Indian community in Oka, Quebec, near Montreal. Provincial police in riot gear stormed the barricades the Mohawks had set up. There were clouds of tear gas, a hail of bullets, and in the midst of the battle, a policeman was killed. Tonight, it's a standoff. The situation very tense. What kind of people are you? There's children here and you're shooting tear gas at us. This dispute was probably the largest well-publicized uh, conflict between First Nations and the Canadian government that we'd seen in the late 20th century. So it was very, very critical. During the heat of the summer, armed police and soldiers surrounded a longhouse in Ganawage. A longhouse is a sacred place of governance where we, as Mohawk people, meet, conduct our ceremonies, and have social gatherings. During this crisis, what became particularly emotional for Hu at this time 
was that the police and the soldiers also surrounded the same longhouse in Kanawaki that Robert taught in 1972. He, he actually did um, as, as stint as a teacher there. And it, it really broke his heart. Some 30 years after that summer of 1990, I was walking into the Art Gallery of Ontario. Just a 15 minute walk from his one-time studio to see Houle's exhibition, Red is Beautiful. When I came through the front doors, Houle's banners were proudly displayed in the entranceway, taking up my entire field of view with their size. As a Mohawk person, I felt seen. It was like Houle was not only welcoming me, but reminding me of our resistance. As I walked through the expansive exhibition, I was blown away by his artistic commitment to solidarity with indigenous peoples across Turtle Island. He has made pieces for the Mohawk Nation, but also works commemorating the struggle for land at Ipperwash, a warrior shield for the Cree of Lubacan Lake, a parflesh for the Innu Nation, warrior lances for Tamagami, and Seven in Steel, a series of oil paintings memorializing Indigenous people who were annihilated because of their relationship to the land. Poole has spent his career addressing the injustices facing our communities and the struggle for First Nations' rights and title. His artwork emphasizes that land is part of understanding one's own history and future path, and in particular for him, in shaping his Anishinaabe identity. While his artwork does not always show land in a literal sense, Houle's immense understanding of the connection between culture and land is always evident, and he believes that the loss of ancestral land leads to a loss of identity. Houle was born in 1947, the eldest of 15 children in St. Boniface, Manitoba. Like many from his generation, he was separated from his family in Sandy Bay First Nation and forced to attend a Catholic-run residential school. There, he was removed from the culture, language, and ceremonies that were central to his family life. But Houle was acutely aware of the issues facing First Nations people in Canada. During his high school years, he was influenced by the changing Canadian politics surrounding First Nations treaty rights. An Act Respecting Indians. Section 20. Possession of Lands on Reserve. Item number one. No Indian is lawfully in possession of land in a reserve unless with the approval of the minister. The minister may issue to an Indian who is lawfully in possession of land in a reserve a certificate, but no transfer until it is approved by the minister. The property of mentally incompetent Indians is vested exclusively in the minister. A mandatory part of Houle's studies was reading passages from the Indian Act. 
This made him acutely aware of the oppression he was facing from a young age. In order to vote in federal elections, indigenous people had to give up their Indian status and leave the reserve for good. This all changed on March 31, 1960, when First Nations people were granted the right to vote in federal elections without the loss of Indian status. When Houle graduated, he was able to vote. In the summer of 1969, Houle worked at the Department of Indian Affairs and Northern Development in Ottawa. There, he joined First Nations protests in opposition to the government's notorious white paper policy, which called for an end to federal responsibility for First Nations. This paper was widely criticized for being an assimilationist policy. This was a, a charged period when First Nations were articulating clear positions uh, regarding land claims, the human rights, and self-government. At the same time, Houle was developing his drawing and painting skills. He was encouraged to attend post-secondary and graduated from both the University of Manitoba and McGill University, where he studied art and teaching. Houle's time in Montreal, at McGill, was marked by the wake of the October crisis of 1970. Quebec sovereigntists clashed with the police and the Canadian army over Quebec's future as a part of Canada. At the same time, the city was experiencing a surge of contemporary visual art. In 1975, Houle had his first introduction to Indigenous artists in an exhibition called Colors of Pride, paintings by seven professional Native artists. There were paintings by Norval Morisot, Daphne Ojig, Alex Janvier, and others. This is where he learned of a distinctive narrative style based on Anishinaabe stories. Bohul was equally influenced by the works of contemporary American and European artists. He admired hard-edged painters like Piet Mondrian and abstract expressionists like Barnett Newman, who made large colorful paintings, often with nothing more than a subtle line down the middle. Houle was intrigued by the portrayal of Indigenous peoples by European painters, like French artist Eugène Delacroix. Houle sought inspiration everywhere, combining styles and ways of thinking to help him express himself as a contemporary Indigenous person. In the early 70s, he was doing these smaller abstract paintings, and he had this book by Carrie Lyford called Ojibwe Crafts. And he was really influenced and intrigued by the ge geometric designs in these crafts. And so the abstract paintings to him also kind of resembled indigenous designs. And so how do you marry the two? So for Houle, using color in his work is very spiritual, but you have to look at his work as commingling modernism with native spiritualism. So he has his own style. That's Shirley Medilligan. In 1986, she met Houle at his studio to see 13 paintings called Parfleshes for the Last Supper. This iconic work is composed of handmade paper, folded at the top to create a flap, then painted with acrylic and stitched together with porcupine quills to look like a parflesh. A parflesh is a rawhide pouch often made from a single piece of dried, untanned animal skin that is folded and laced together. Using his knowledge of color theory, Houle carefully selected hues for their symbolism. Each of the pieces represents one of the Twelve Apostles and Jesus. In this work, Houle successfully married symbolism and techniques from two worlds. I was very excited about his work, and we requested that he be our first artist-in-residence at the Winnipeg Art Gallery in 1989. 
And then we moved on to have an exhibition of his work in 1990. That was the first solo show in a public art gallery. Shirley curated two exhibitions of Houle's work in the 1990s, Indians from A to Z and Sovereignty Over Subjectivity. These two shows focused on contemporary Native identity and territory and place. Shirley even wrote a book on Houle's life and work. And his demeanor is very um, soft, you know, and humble, but so generous. And this is one characteristic I could say. He was so generous with the kind of information that he shares with you about the traditions. And yet underneath it all, I call this man of steel, who is so forthright in the beliefs. Houle continued to be shaped by the events that were unfolding in his personal life and collectively for Indigenous people in the 80s and 90s. There were political events across Canada that really, I would say, galvanized Indigenous solidarity and and really aroused um, activism that I think resonates through the decades, even today. We remember these issues. One of these moments was the Meech Lake Accord in 1987. The Accord proposed a strengthening of provincial powers and a declaration of Quebec as a distinct society. The Accord was never put into effect, largely because of one man, Elijah Harper, an OG Cree politician from Sucker Lake, Manitoba. Harper withheld his consent on the grounds that First Nations had not been consulted or recognized in the constitutional discussions around the Accord. Elijah Harper votes no to the the Meech Lake Accord. And then this became, you know, um, a real open door, um, total opening up the can in terms of of those issues around uh, self-government. Many of the issues raised by the Oka crisis, by Elijah Harper, by Houle, are issues Indigenous people are still discussing today. Self-government, land back, and the repatriation of our cultural objects, as well as the proper training for museums, galleries, academic and government institutions on how to work respectfully with Indigenous people. In 1988, there was an exhibition by the Glenbow Museum in downtown Calgary called The Spirit Sings, Artistic Traditions of Canada's First Peoples. It was being held in conjunction with the Winter Olympics and was making waves across the country. The show included objects that had originally been removed from Indigenous communities and placed in various museums and collections. The Cree Lubicon Lake Nation in northern Alberta led a widely publicized campaign to boycott the show. This was not only because of the stolen objects. The Lubicon were resisting oil exploration in their traditional territory. And who was a major sponsor of the exhibition? None other than Shell Canada. Meanwhile, the federal government would not grant the Lubicon the right to their land. This was another critical moment for Houle. Robert had no intention of viewing this exhibition. And subsequently, he did this incredible piece called Warrior Shield for the Lubicon in 1989. It's a work that actually transforms an oil drum into an abstracted landscape, you know, and painted over the landscape. And so that was one very pronounced work on his part in support. Boycotts, demonstrations, and media storms had a profound impact on Houle's work. When I think about the Lubicon and you think about Spirit Sings, that reverberated across the museum country, right, about what not to do. The 90s were just so pointed that way. So I think at that point, Robert's work did, in fact, inform museums about what not to do. It was just one of those charged 
decades that we'll always remember. Then, of course, there were the charged events of the summer of 1990, Mohawk Summer, as Houle called it. And five years later, tensions rose in Ontario over a land dispute at Iperwash Provincial Park. Members of the Ojibwe Nation occupied a section of the park to assert their claim to nearby land, which had been taken from them years earlier. In September 1995, police moved in on unarmed protesters, and a sniper shot and killed one of the demonstrators. Dudley George. And in response, Houle produces two powerful works, Ganesadage X and Iperwash. Kanasateke X is really beautiful because it has um, a section that is the blue painted landscape. And, and blue is the um, spiritual emotional color for Hul that, that goes back to his ancestral home in Manitoba. At the same time that Hul was starting to produce more politically responsive art, he was also taking strong stances as a curator and advocating for a place for Indigenous art in fine art galleries. He was looking at Indigenous art seriously as being part of the mainstream, because even in uh, galleries such as the, the National Gallery of Canada or any gallery, I'd say, that was a, what you call the art Fine Arts Museum, there was still a slant to not exhibiting this work in alongside contemporary artists. And this is what Robert wanted to do. Um, he wanted his work considered as part of the mainstream. After graduating from McGill, Houle was offered an exciting new position where he saw he could make a difference and maybe even make life better for other Indigenous artists. He was hired as the first Indigenous curator of contemporary Indian art at the Museum of Man in Gatineau, Quebec, now called the Museum of History. Houle was honored to be offered the position. The commitment of this national museum to create a job was very significant. So most institutions would not have had roles, not like we have today. And yet the museum had an extensive collection of Indigenous art, but there was nobody on staff that would have the expertise or Indigenous knowledge and art making to address it. Who researched the existing Indigenous art collection, wrote about Indigenous artists, and started curating exhibitions. Traveling with his new role, he had the opportunity to meet artists that previously he'd only seen in books or exhibitions. He developed relationships with artists like Robert Davidson, Alex Janvier, Daphne Ojig, Carl Beam, Bob Boyer, and Norval Morisot. After three years at the Museum of Man, Houle had grown tired of seeing Indigenous art and items placed in ethnographic collections. Then, one day, something happened that he could not excuse. He was in the vault within the museum collection when a staff member opened a medicine bundle. A medicine bundle is a sacred, living, holy object that is extremely important to many indigenous peoples and should not have been opened. Houle knew that it should have been respected and not examined and cataloged like a mere artifact. At that point, he felt discouraged that no real change was being made in the institution despite the creation of his position. 
what he did, and this is like this whole statement, he, he went into the galleries within the vault and he sketched these objects. He sketched, you know, the parfleshes. He sketched the, you know, warrior staffs. He sketched the shields. And that afternoon, he handed his resignation. He basically had walked out. And he, he said it was at that point with that transgression that I decided that my purpose at that time to be an activist and an artist and really address um, these issues that were facing the museums was to move forward as an artist in that respect. At that time, Houle said, I realized that artistically and aesthetically, I was in hostile territory. There was no place to exhibit the contemporary works I bought for the museum. And I just could not accept that as a practicing artist, what I made had to be relegated to the realm of anthropology. He grabbed the attention of institutions across the country with his resignation from the Museum of Man in 1980. Houle now had a mission to devote his career to changing the museum and political landscape through his art. But despite his determined support of Indigenous art, Houle still felt it was important to celebrate Indigenous artists as individuals, and not always as part of some larger movement. He was criticized for it when he wanted to depart from the group exhibitions and have his own solo exhibition that would show the individuality of his work, even though he was still informed by Indigenous traditions. Some Indigenous artists felt that he was neglecting that heritage, that he was denouncing that heritage, and that was not the case. Today, we're talking about decolonization. He was already addressing decolonization at that point, and I don't think that that term truthfully was used in the museum field. As curators and artists across Canada continued to debate whether contemporary Indigenous art had a place in mainstream galleries, Houle filled his art with a more political message. Writing in a magazine article, he said, My studio visits reaffirmed my belief that the place and the process of creative activity, a place where the artist is at once powerful and vulnerable, is the site of political and cultural change. In 1989, Houle created a painting called Aboriginal Title, a red canvas with four years in the center. 1763, 1867, 1876, 1982. These four crucial years mark the signing of colonial legislation that tried to define Indigenous land rights. He believed that the legacy of European colonization cut off First Nations people from their own territories. And his work visually asserts our historic and legal connection to our territories as First Peoples. In his series, Premises for Self-Rule, each of the five pieces is painted with a lush-colored abstract painting on the left. On the right, found photographs showing images of Indigenous people are superimposed onto legal texts from treaties. The same years are featured as an Aboriginal title, with one addition, Treaty Number 1. So... Treaty number one is very personal because it refers to his homeland when we're thinking about Manitoba. And treaty number one was signed in 1871. When Manitoba joined Confederation in 1870, treaty number one historically was concluded between the Queen of Great Britain and Ireland and her commissioner, Wemyss Simpson, and the Soto and Cree. 
And that transformed this district, which was Assiniboia, into a new province. But the colonial government did not uphold the right of First Nations to the land title that was established by that treaty. So what Robert is doing in this very specific work is that he takes the photograph, right? He superimposes it on the, on the treaty, which is really an act of reclaiming. He's foregrounding the First Nations over European North American legislative history by that simple act. And so he subverts the treaty, the document. If you get close enough to read the tiny text of the documents, you'll find it's obscured by the photographs. What Robert is doing is he is using um, three distinct Western cultural forms. So modernism, when you look at the painting, the abstract painting, there's the archive, which is the photograph. And this is historically accurate, right? This, this photograph, because it's, it's found. And then there's the colonial government treaty. And so the works themselves make this really powerful statement about the inherent right of First Nations to autonomy, to self-rule, and to title to sovereign lands. So why was it important for Houle to have the image obscuring the text? The text is a lie, all right? It's as simple as that. The treaties were not honored. The agreements of shared land or any of that was not honored. And yet the historical photographs are accurate. So basically the truth over the lie is fairly simple in, in that understanding. And it reinstates First Nations, right, on their land. So that's why the treaty is obliterated. It's such an effective tool to use appropriation to readdress something because it's revisionist. And you see artists that are doing this is that they're, they're not accurate. So in order to counter it is you appropriate the work and then you change it, which is revising it. It's been done by women artists, addressing representation and history by male artists, right? Uh, so you, you begin to reverse the narrative. So what it does is it sets a whole new perspective on history. Cool employed this revisionary technique again when a painting by Benjamin West from 1770 caught his attention. The famous painting called The Death of General Wolfe depicts the dying general at a battle that would seal the demise of New France in 1759. The image shows Wolfe in a reclining, Christ-like position, with witnesses gathered around him. The entire painting for Benjamin West was meant to be accurate. He considered it a, a historical document. And none of it's true, because many of the witnesses were either shot or dead, and <laughs> they don't think that even General Wolfe died on the plane. One of the witnesses is a First Nations warrior. Houle was deeply concerned by this Indigenous warrior being flanked by the British and French soldiers. In response, he created a monumental 24-foot painting called Canada in 1992. In this painting, he appropriates West's imagery. He fades away the figures, removing all the color, except for the warrior. But he keeps the warrior in color and paints the garb red and blue. And so that's your middle panel. On either side of that middle panel, there's blue thing and there's a red. So that basically marries his interest in modernism and abstraction and also using the colors, but the colors refer to the French and the British. The reality is that the, the English and the French continue 
to be, you know, these major players, right? <laughs> this whole history of the of the the country. And what Hull's painting is doing is forcing recognition of First Nations and addressing the historical inaccuracy of the idea that the founding nations are Britain and France. Here's Hull speaking in 2015 about his painting Canada. The story of Canada is about us as well from day one, because we were here first. We settled here first. It's a tripod, this country. You know, it's the French, English, and First Nations. We helped shape this country, you know, and, and we continue to. In 1992, the same year Hul painted Canada, celebrations were happening across the country, marking the 500-year anniversary of Columbus's 1492 arrival in the Americas. As you may have already guessed, Hul wasn't having a party. Instead, he was curating what would be a landmark exhibition of Indigenous artists. And it was one of the, the first projects that, um, you know, was really putting uh, the National Gallery of Canada into a, a place where they would recognize Indigenous artists and as contemporary artists in, in their spaces. The landmark exhibition was held at the National Gallery of Canada in Ottawa. Houle called the show Land, Spirit, Power. He included artists like Carl Beam, Rebecca Belmore, Robert Davidson, Faye Heavyshield, Alex Jeanvier, James Luna, Alanis Obamsawin, and Kay Walkingstick. But many people at the time thought their art, if they would even call it that, belonged across the Ottawa River in the anthropological galleries of the Canadian Museum of Civilization. It was so unprecedented for Native artists to be shown in such a prestigious gallery. One newspaper reviewer wrote that he suspected the recognition would be short-lived, adding that these artists would never be seen there again. Land, Spirit, Power is still widely regarded as one of the most influential Indigenous art exhibitions of the 20th century. It paved the way for more Indigenous artists and curators, and the exhibition showcased land as a spiritual and political legacy. Through this curatorial effort, Poole asserted that First Nations had an inherent right to the land their ancestors enjoyed and respected. If you'd like to see the images referred to in this episode, check out the links in the show notes. The Art of Sovereignty is written and hosted by Chris Beaver and Shelby Lisk. Produced by Ozzy Michelin and Katie O'Connor. Edited by Chris Beaver with assistance from Matthew O'Mara. Lori Few is the executive producer for Digital at TVO. Production assistance from Jonathan Hallowell, Nikki Ashworth, and Albert Wisco. Music by Bedtrax. We'd like to thank the artists and curators who made time to speak with us for the series. Special thanks to the Art Gallery of Peterborough, the Power Plant Gallery, Carleton University, and especially Wanda Nanabush and the Art Gallery of Ontario.